Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 475 of the podcast. It's May 17th, 2023. Our guest today is Joshua Karievsky. He is the founder and CEO of Industrial Logic, and he is the author of the book Joy of Agility. Now, if you don't work in software, don't let the word agility um, scare you away. This is not a podcast about quote unquote agile software development, even though that is uh, you know Joshua's background and it is part of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about agility more broadly um, based on his uh, background with lean and, and continuous improvement. I really think there is something um, that this episode offers uh, for everybody who's interested in Uh, learning and improving more quickly, being more nimble and, if you will, agile as an organization. So for links to more information about Joshua, his company, his book, and more, you can look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 475. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is Joshua Karievsky. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Industrial Logic. They are one of the oldest and most well-respected agile consultancies on the planet. So since 1996, Joshua and his global network of colleagues have helped people and teams in many industries leverage the wisdom and power of modern product development methods. He's been an early pioneer and practitioner of methods, including extreme programming, lean software development, and the lean startup. He's crafted an approach called modern agile to help people and organizations benefit from a principles-based approach to Agility. So we'll get to explore that today. Agile versus uh, agility. His uh, most recent book um, of of his many books is The Joy or just Joy of Agility. So my mistake. Sorry about that. Uh, Joshua, thank you for being here. How are you? My pleasure. Thank you, Mark. A pleasure to be on your show. Yeah. Well, so there's uh, a lot to talk about. And I I think we'll preface for for listeners here. um, Agile or agility, we are not Speaking, we think only to people in software companies. Agreed. Oh, very much so. Yes, yes. Agility uh, is an adjective, and it predates any any kind of uh, thing that happened in the software field. So we'll have a chance to explore all those key differences here. So um, please keep listening. If you are from other industries, we're going to be talking about um, ideas from manufacturing and applications into um, all sorts of other settings here. So, um, you know, Joshua, as I, as I often do here, I, I like to ask people their origin story. Sometimes it's it's easily framed as a quote unquote lean origin story. I'll let you take that whatever direction with whatever terminology fits for you. You know, I'm, I think uh, I my origin story would just be, um, I think I've always been interested in continuous improvement, um, you know, long before uh, I heard the term Kaizen. Um, but it's always been in my nature to just look for improving things. And, uh, so that has applied to many things in my life, whether it's being a kid learning how to skateboard and trying to get better at it or, uh, or, you know, a craft like software development or writing or, you know, parenting, uh, anything where there's a chance to improve. It's, it's been part of my nature. So anything that's, you know, in that vein is important to me. I, I love lean. I love all the principles and and practices and the the models and and agile. Um, I love a lot of agile. I, I don't like the agile that most people hate, which is the cheesy, <laughs> over commercialized um, certification factory kind of agile. But real agility is something that I love because uh, you you want you want your surgeon to be agile in the case of an unexpected situation. You want your, your lawyer to be agile. Uh, you want, we agile is a good thing. We want to, we want to be agile. Uh, so yes, that's kind of my, my origin story. Yeah. And and not to play the, well, what, what's the dictionary say um, game here, but I mean, how do you define agile and agility? So for example, I do a lot in health work in healthcare, so for a surgeon to be agile, what would be some characteristics or examples or, or even from other industries to be agile? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the definition is in the dictionary. It's from, I like the Merriam-Webster dictionary uh, definition of, of, of agile. Agile is an adjective. So, you know, it's got to, you know, be associated with some noun, um, an agile team, an agile surgeon, agile lawyer. Uh, agile means characterized by a ready ability 
to move with quick, easy grace. Mm. Or having a quick, resourceful, and adaptable character. Either one uh, is, is really a good definition. And so you can apply that definition to pretty much anything. So I think in the um, the book that you helped to um, put out there to edit, I think the book about Paul O'Neill on habitual excellence. I have a copy. I don't mean to be ducking out of screen. <laughs> but yeah, a playbook for habitual excellence. Playbook for Habitual Excellence. In that in that book, uh, I love the story about um, they taught they found like twenty some odd different ways that um, was it something being uh, blood blood draw drawing blood or or I think it was probably the story related to managing um, central lines with Dr. Rick Shannon. Like okay. twenty different ways for different people to do basically the same work. The same work. So and then you know that so that that's that's not graceful. It might be quick and easy for someone to do it that way, the way they learned. But if there's 20 different ways and it, it leads to mistakes, that there's no grace there. It's not graceful. Um, and, and you know, so basically to me, uh, you know, lean might call it standard work, you know, um, but that finding that way to do something with quick, easy grace is not easy at all. Not easy, um, but it's wonderful. And uh, yeah, my father had, you know, open heart surgery back in uh, last September. You know, and uh, you know, obviously, you 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 want your surgeon to be incredibly nimble and agile in, in the space of the operating theater. If things can go wrong, um, it's uh, it's it's a wonderful idea, and it all, mostly comes down to like how how crafty are you, right? What's your craft? Have you how deep of a practitioner are you, and so forth? Yeah, I mean, thinking about surgery, and again. Doing, I mean, doing so as an engineer, you know, you think of, you know, they, they, they should have a method, they should have a plan, they should have standard work. That said, people in healthcare are fond of saying um, things like every patient is unique, and that may be true only to a certain extent. But you know, what what happens? What's the plan for when things don't go according to plan? How nimble, how agile, how adaptable are they to a situation where they discover something about the patient's condition that they didn't realize or, um, you know, uh, th something is going wrong, whether it was caused by a mistake or not. They they also need to, yeah, be agile. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so it's, yeah, it's basically that, that ability to deal with the unexpected and to... Um, be able to just accomplish things very, very, you know, quickly, easily, and gracefully. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it would be interesting. I mean, it's a thought experiment. If the phrase lean manufacturing had been, let's say if they had dubbed it agile manufacturing, and sometimes people use that word agile in manufacturing, I think just as, as more of that adjective or that goal, right. Not meaning, you know, software, but, you know, we talk about, Quick, easy grace, you know, to me, that, that sounds like you're talking about not just speed, but quality. Um, customer focus, I think, is implied in that. But then the other part about resourceful and adaptable, that makes me think of, like, you know, kind of classic Toyota thinking of um, the cliche, putting creativity before capital. You know, and Toyota right. had to be very resourceful because they couldn't throw money at problems back in the 50s. And, and then adaptable, you know, to me, that that sounds like Kaizen and continuous improvement. So it sounds yes. like different words for maybe the same ideas. I, I believe it's all in the same, the same category of stuff. Like, you know, there, there are people that in the lean community are like, Oh no, I don't do that agile stuff. You know, and there are agile people that basically don't know anything about lean, unfortunately. And yeah, I think ultimately all this stuff has a common denominator and, and is, is basically all focused on the same things. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm reading a book right now on tennis and it's basically talking about the scientific method of, you know, probing and experimenting on, on, you know, out there on the tennis court when you're trying to figure out how to win in a match. Um, and you've got to pay attention to your opponent and you have to like try things and experiment and probe. And it, it's like you could, I could be reading a business book, you know, but it's, it's talking about tennis strategy. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds like another scenario. I mean, I used to play tennis like through high school, never at a, a high level, but I mean, I think you you would come into a match with a game plan. Let's say if you know about your opponent, 
Like That's high school right. tennis, you're lined up against some random kid. You may you don't know their name even barely. But you know, it seemed like it would seem like at the professional level, they've seen each other play, they've played each other, they could watch tape. They might say, All right, I'm 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 gonna pick on you. You know, Joshua's got a weak backhand. So that's my game plan. I'm going to try to hammer everything to his backhand. Um, that might be known and that might be, but then maybe you've worked on your backhand. Maybe that's no longer true. Or maybe, you know, I think, well, you're you're really a, a baseline player and now you suddenly start playing serve and volley. And I wasn't right. prepared for that. Right. That's so right. How, how do you adjust in the moment? Right? That's right. Yes. In fact, I mean, I was uh, several, a couple of years ago, Chris Everett was, was, you know, announcing one of the female tennis matches and she said, she mentioned that that player's agile, you know, mm. and I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to send her my book. So I actually sent her uh, yeah. a copy of Joy of Agility and she uh, she enjoyed it. So oh, wow. it's, it's it's applicable. It's broadly applicable, these these ideas. Yeah. And, and was she was she wonder because um, you could be agile, you could be quick on your feet or agile, quick in your thinking or adjustments in match. Do you think, do you know, did she mean both in that context? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think any, anyone, you know, at the height of tennis is, is aware of like the importance of thinking and the, the physical body. It, it's, it's, um, there's so much mind body stuff now too. I mean, and I mean, these professional players, a lot of them have, uh, you know, uh, thought coaches, mental coaches, whatever you want to call them. Um, to help them, you know, with the psychological. And I, I think just the other day I heard Chris Everett say it's it's so much a mental game um, that people don't realize how much of a mental game. You know, um, Djokovic is famous for saying, uh, Novak Djokovic is famous for, famous for saying, everyone has a good has good strokes and good this and that. It's the mind that, that that's where the differences are. Mm. Yeah, the talent, the physical talent and physical ability gap might not be as broad as that mental toughness. That's right. That, yeah. And that ability to problem solve. Yeah. Right. That ability to problem solve and find. And so let's say you're not playing your A game. Great. What's your B game? What's your C game? How do you figure out this thing? So the great champions are able to do that. And it's not unlike what organizations need to do to solve their own problems. You know, yeah. it's it's where we're constantly in the business of solving problems and breaking through. I say break on through to the agile side. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. With, with apologies to the doors. <laughs> sure. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, also Joshua, um, you know, for one, the name of your company, Industrial Logic. Yes. Like what, what's the origin of that name? Oh, yeah. Um, well, in the mid-1990s, um, a company uh, was birthed that um, started doing some just incredible things, and it was very visual, and it was called Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, George Lucas's company, and, and we're still around today. Uh, back then, you know, we were seeing, you know, special effects in the movies that just were astonishing. You know, you just you had never seen anything like it, and and it was made by ILM, Industrial Light and Magic. I would love the name of the company. I just thought that is a cool name. Um, so when it came time to name my company, um, you know, I wanted to play on that a little bit. So, um, you know, and then Logic's just always been a part of programming and stuff like that. So that's how that came together. Yeah. yeah. So it's not because there were roots in doing software for manufacturing companies. No, no, not really. It was really more like just I, I like the industrial light and magic name. So I also wanted a name that wouldn't be too coupled to any given method, you know, like it wasn't, yeah, it was it was intended to be uh, you know, a name that could could last. Yeah. And that's funny. I'm I'm a quote unquote industrial engineer. It was the name on my degree. And there are some who say, like, oh, that sounds like a really dusty, you know, outdated degree, like, you know, like uh from horse and buggy days or something. But well, I don't think just, so. I think it's cool. I, I, think it's I really do cool. too. I do yeah. too. Um, but there's there's another word though, um, maybe you know, more importantly, that that I hear people in healthcare kind of poo-poo. I've I've heard people in software kind of do the same. And that and that word is process. Mm -hmm. you know, that um you can think of standardized work or what what's the plan? What's the process for the surgeon right. in their work? What's the process that supports them by providing mm -hmm. the correct instruments that are properly sterilized and clean? And there's a lot mm -hmm. of process. Mm -hmm. But you know, in healthcare, I you know, I think people leap to thinking process means overly rigid. And it, it seems like I've heard people maybe with what, what I think, uh, I mean, it's a perception. I would think it's 
not at all true that process means are overly rigid. I mean, what, what do you run across? Do you run across people in software who are like, oh, no, process, that sounds bureaucratic or limiting or, or bad? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Process uh, can be a bad word for a lot of people. Uh, it's Some would say don't focus on process, focus on outcomes. Um, some Some do think of process basically means I don't get to choose. I don't get to exercise my creativity because I have to follow the process. So it can lead to kind of like a, a way of being an automaton, a, some forms of mechanical kind of, I just follow. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, I like to think about coach John Wooden, right? The famous uh, coach of, uh, you know, he was a hall of fame basketball player and a hall of fame coach yeah, and considered that, one of the greatest coaches of the 20th yeah, century. Uh, UCLA. UCLA Bruins. Right. So, um, he would say, you know, he didn't, I don't think he used the word process at all. For sure he didn't. But, you know, he focused on the mechanics of the wooden style of playing, right? John Wooden's style of playing. And that was, he'd say, I'm more of a practice coach than a game coach. I focus on practice and what we want to do. And when it comes to the game time, there's not much I can do. It's already going to happen. What's going to happen is going to happen at game time. Let's Let's focus on that practice time. To me, they were practicing their process, and that process was to help their players be adaptive. Uh, as a whole, I mean, we can go on and on about what what he taught them. I, I talk about it in the book a fair amount, um, but it's uh, to me that's really what it's about: is is being practiced in the ability to be agile, to be graceful under pressure, to to be adaptive quickly when when necessary. That that kind of that kind of practice, that kind of process is great. Yeah. But, you know, back you know, to that idea of, of, of process being um, helpful or, or being limiting. Like I, I think of, um, you know, the Toyota language I've heard, I, I think they've, they've talked about um, what they call enabling bureaucracy or limiting bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there are a lot of settings where, Standardized work or process allow frees you to make decisions that are necessary in the course of your work. Um, you know, having standardized work in healthcare certainly doesn't mean every minute of the day is scripted, like a, a repetitive sixty-second job cycle might be on an, an assembly line. So, you know, when people say like, "Well, we can't let the standard work," um, you know, where it's going to tell people to check their brains at the door. I'm like, well, then let's let's not tell them that. Like that that's our our human choice, or if they say, well, it, it lean says we have to do, we have to treat every patient exactly the same way. I'm like, well, lean doesn't say anything like, come on, we're like, like let's use principles, but um, and let's not, let's not take it to an extreme, but do, do you run across other, you know, similar mindset or concerns when it comes to agile or things that are more in the software and entrepreneurship space of like saying, well, this method says, as opposed to being able to think and discuss and decide as a team. Yeah. You know, you don't want it to be stifling. And and so I think your, your, your terms of enabling, you know, are, are really wonderful. I mean, it's, it's, you want, you want people to feel enabled to potentially try something better, right? So break out of the process, try something better, right? So, uh, you know, Permission to experiment. Um, if, if you, I think if people aren't experimenting, you know, regularly, then you're not growing. Um, so, you know, you ought to look at how often are we experimenting around here. Now, those have to be safe experiments, especially in a, in a medical field, um, but and in, in business as well, right? You you can't you be careful betting the entire company on an experiment. Um, you know, you want safe, safe, productive experiments. Um, so, yeah, I think. Uh, it's uh, it's important to have an enabling. I, I probably wouldn't use the term for bureaucracy, but you know, uh, but but again, you know, in a large company that exists, and and there's there's those things are there for good reason, right? Those those policies and procedures they're there to protect probably the company and, and the customers of the company, but they can become stifling. You know, General Motors basically ended up having so many safety checks that it became stifling for them. Right. And they realized at some point that it was just not helping. They had to rethink it. Right. Um, well, there, there's, there's rules versus 
um, you know, culture. So maybe let, let's let's bring the conversation back to um, to Paul O'Neill, who you had mentioned earlier. And um, we're recording this on April twentieth. Uh, it's two days past the third anniversary of uh, of his passing. So I've I've been thinking about Paul O'Neill a lot this week, as as some of our um, colleagues have. Um, tell tell I mean, how how did you get? Exp- I'm always curious. Like, how did you get exposed to him and and to his ideas? In 2012, um, I read uh, Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. And there's a wonderful chapter in there called The Ballad of Paul O'Neill. And I just basically went nuts for that chapter. I just, I love the whole book, but that particular chapter, I had to read it again and read it again and started saying to myself, you know, he transformed this 100 year old industrial giant which in the 1880s, right, 1886 is when they started, they they invented the aluminum smelting process at Alcoa, and they were a monopoly. They were, they were actually broken up later on in the 20s or 30s <laughs> as a monopoly. Mm-hmm. So that's what birthed Alcan in Canada was a separate company. It used to be part of Alcoa. Um, but at some point, decades later, they were they've lost, lost their way badly. Um, they would fight with the unions. They had poor quality. They were not innovating at all. Workers were unhappy. It was a mess. And uh, Paul O'Neill was the first non-Alcoan to step into the CEO role. And he basically transformed the place with this with this singular focus on worker safety. So you know the story. Um, that's what blew my mind reading about that in, in Charles Duhigg's book. And I thought, well, you know, we've been doing this with Agile, with with extreme programming, for example. We've been really focusing on safety. We just haven't made safety a like a first class word that we use a lot. It's in the it's back there, kind of hidden. The word safety. Um, so I started to really see that what he was talking about really applied to what we do in software. And then I ended up um, reaching out to people, Alcoa. And discovering uh, some folks there who worked with, you know, um, with Paul O'Neill, and eventually I ended up interviewing Paul O'Neill a couple of times. So that was that was just a, a huge career highlight for me. But I, I, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here. We talked about this um, before recording. You interviewed him, but you haven't published it. You're working on that, right? Yeah, I, I interviewed him, and uh, yeah, I didn't publish those interviews yet. Um, we transcribed them and I, you know, I definitely have used little elements of, of what I learned in those inter- interviews for sure. Right. Uh, there were things he told me about that had not been published in any books. And so they're in my book, Joy of Agility. Um, I just didn't publish the raw transcripts and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Sure. Um, but I, I do want to be getting that out there, breaking it up and <clears throat> giving the audio and all that stuff. So that's coming. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of great uh, gems in there. Yeah. And I, I'll certainly help, you know, share that in different ways when, when you have that available. I mean, I had the opportunity, this was going back to episode 124 of this podcast series to interview him. And I'll, I'll put a link um, to that yeah. in, in the, in the show notes. Um, that was probably from about 10 years ago. But what, a lot of what he said, you know, it's just really timeless. Because, I mean, it's, it's principles based. And, and, and I think that's what makes something a principle is that there's a certain timeless element that you can point back to, of, you know, well, wh- why are we making safety a priority? There's a number of principles there. And that went beyond, well, it's a really clever pathway to driving the stock price up. Well, well no, I mean, that ended up happening. You know, as what, what he called, you know, if you use that phrase with you or not, well, this comes back to the title of, of the book you mentioned, or we talked about a playbook for habitual excellence. Like his idea was doing the things that are required as leaders and around the culture and around problem solving and respect to, to really drive measurable safety incidents down. Those are the things that are also going to help you to produce better quality, um, better on-time delivery, lower cost, um, so you know, as 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 an end result, and you know, and there was some influence from Toyota on Alcoa and Paul O'Neill. He came in with a certain set of principles, including 
nobody who works here should get hurt and announcing that on his first day and announcing it to the Wall Street analysts, which I think the, the Duhigg book talks about it. Like how unusual that is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just like they went running out of the room to tell their customers to sell not sell oh, the stock yeah. because you got a crazy man at the helm now talking about worker safety. Yeah. It was 1987. So I think people were running out to a bank of pay phones is the visual if uh, right. your younger listeners can um, try to picture <laughs> what that would have yeah. been. But but I mean, so what what does safety mean in in software? Is it ergonomic keyboards and and good chairs, or is it, there, there's got to be more to it than that too, right? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, we talk about this safeties, you know, like plural. The, the, there's all kinds of safeties, and um, it's not specific only just to software, right? We 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 spend a lot of time on psychological safety, and I know it's become a buzzword. We were interested in it long before it became a buzzword and, and still are very actively helping our customers um, understand what it means and practice it. So we have a, you know, people that are absolutely, they, they love to teach this stuff. And so psychological safety is one. There's uh, information safety, right? Uh, you don't want your information floating out there. You know, there's um, obviously there's just normal security that we talk about in terms of, you know, securing your your software there's uh you know some people think of job security or safety right like is my job safe uh how can people feel that they're not you know on the verge of losing losing work i mean i remember having a conversation with paul o'neill about this some of my questions were, were a bit you know personal in terms of how i run my business um you know we had been struggling with how do we market we're not very good marketers we're engineers you know so um you know, I was asking him some questions about stuff like that. And um, the topic came up of just like hiring. And, you know, his view was that if you hire someone, you're hiring them for the long haul, you know, um, otherwise they ought to be a contractor. It sounds very basic and obvious and, and you know, but it fit perfectly with my values, you know, so that's what we've been doing for years. And, and it's like, but we've made our mistakes where we have hired someone that wasn't quite a fit or we couldn't afford them. And so then it didn't work out. And it was like, in hindsight, I'd be like, well, probably didn't do enough planning there to make sure that this was the right fit that we could afford it for decade, a decade or more, whatever it is, a long haul, um, some stuff like that. So, so I don't mean to get off the topic of your question, but there's no, it's fine. to me so <laughs> many safeties, uh, right. you know, so there's, you know, obviously, um, financial safety i think sometimes we build things that probably cost more you know to to build or to maintain than they actually come you know cost in terms of revenue so like how can we be you know cognizant of the costs a lot of engineers are shielded from the finances almost like children right and i find that to be very um sad because i think if if engineers know more about the costs of things, right. they can be better problem solvers. Um, right. So, you know, financial safety, uh, it goes on and on. Yeah. But something you said there, um, Joshua, reminds me of a point you made earlier. Um, when you're talking about the risk of mistakes, making uh, an expensive capital investment or a big purchase decision that runs the risk of that being an expensive mistake. And that might be a mistake no one wants to admit because it was expensive and we get into a bad cycle there. But um, tell, tell us, you know, uh, your, your thoughts on the idea of how small experiments, small tests of change, safe experiments might minimize, if not eliminate the risk of making that bigger, more expensive mistake. Yeah. I mean, you know, Lean Startup talks a lot about, you know, capital efficient experimentation. And that's a fancy way of just saying quick, cheap experiments. Um, we've done things where, for example, we've put up a fake feature. So basically, it looks like a feature in the software, but if you click on it, it says, oh, we haven't built this yet. How interested are you in this feature? Okay, now, if we did that all the time, our customers would hate us. They'd be afraid to click on anything. So it's, it, that's one of many different testing techniques. You use it once in a while when you need it. But it's an example of not building the, the software up front and instead doing a quick, cheap experiment online with real people in order to get more information rapidly and then make a decision, should we invest in this or not? 
that that's an example, right? There's all kinds of other other examples where you just do some paper prototypes and ask people to walk through some kind of a, a process to see, would this be a little more efficient for you? All you're using is pencil and paper um, or other like online techniques that do the same type of thing. Um, so there's, there's ton, there's a whole, there's whole books on like how to test business ideas. Um, and I, I just think again, that, that spirit of experimentation is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a difference between knowing that we have a solution to go implement because we know it's going to work as opposed to this mindset of we have an idea, let's go test it. What's, you know, and I think this is where people have misunderstandings about lean startup and Eric Reese tries to correct people or proactively do so. It's not about being cheap. It's about faster, less expensive cycles of learning. That's right. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Directionally correct. So we can do the same thing with a process improvement in a hospital or in a workplace. Like instead of knowing it's right and going and spending a lot of money, it takes a little bit of humility to go like, well, let's go test it because maybe we could, we, we might be wrong or we might not fully understand it. Let's do a small test. Let's learn from it. And that, that requires a certain psychological safety to go try right. something and, and learn instead of just being hell bent on proving your idea, right. You know, failure is not an option kind of thinking. Yeah, in, in the book, I, I talk about a story from Amazon where a summer intern came in and noticed, this is early days of Amazon, right? So noticed that during checkout, there wasn't any kind of uh, last minute offers. Like, hey, you could also buy this or buy that, right? Like, you know, when you go to the grocery store, there's like magazines and candy and yeah. various things Impulse at the counter, right? right? When you're checking out. Um, this, is, this would actually, he, his idea was this would be even cooler because we know what's in your cart. Hmm. digitally right we know and so we could we could basically say oh you're buying uh, these tennis shoes you might be interested in this uh tennis racket or whatever um and so but his idea was shot down by a senior vp just shot down they said listen during the checkout process we don't want to mess with anything we just want it to go smoothly and we don't want to like you know interfere and get them yeah. They're saying no friction. Don't add friction to the buying experience. That's right. right? So he was shut down. However, Amazon had a kind of uh, environment where you could test your ideas analytically, quantitatively. And so he just spun something, wrote some ugly code and and just to see what would happen. And it was very promising. So promising that they said, well, let's let's actually now try it in uh, a production environment on a tiny percentage of Amazon customers. And that showed not only promise, it showed that they were losing so much money that if they didn't build this thing, you know, they'd be foolish. Like, so they ended up creating a team and building it. And, um, you know, that's, that's an example, I guess, of, of an environment, of a, a company that has invested in empowering people to experiment, even when folks don't agree. Right. So that intern had a hypothesis, we could call it, like it sounded like mm-hmm. a pretty reasonable idea. The senior VP may have had a hypothesis of like, well, we're going to see higher cart abandonment rates. And, you know, when, when you have that battle of opinions, usually whoever's higher in the hierarchy right. wins. Where either one of them could have been wrong to some extent, but then having that ability, if not permission, to go do a small test of change. Let's see, okay, increased sales, um, cart abandonment rate, I don't know, like even if it was down a little bit, net, net, or no, the abandonment rate was up, you know, you might be net, net better off. And like that comes back to, um, you know, psychological safety as Tim Clark and others describe, um, you know, is, is the best idea winning out as opposed to the highest ranking person. That's a sign that you have not just psychological safety, but good, good problem solving, good experimental business practices. Right. Exactly. I mean, and, and I'll just give a counter story, which is, you know, we we tried uh, subscriptions on our e-learning uh, software at some point. We have our own e-learning software, and we tried subscriptions. And we tried it. We really gave it a shot. It was a good year and a half of trying. And then we realized this is just not not working, and it's not helpful. And let's let's get rid of the subscription concept altogether. And then fast forward several years later, new people join the company. Have you thought about subscriptions? <laughs> 
Or not, you know, and then that's where it's tricky because it's like you don't want to be a know-it-all and like, <laughs> no, we're not doing subscriptions. Sorry, great idea. We're not doing it. We so, tried that before and it didn't work. That we tried that before lot, and it didn't. We tried that before it did, but we did try it before and it didn't work. And we don't have a lot of economic runway uh, to to burn again trying that same experiment. And it wouldn't be largely different than what we had already tried. So that's a case where it's like you know I don't even need a a quantitative experimentation and environment because we've already done all that work and it, it did show us that it didn't work, you know? So, I, I mean, you know, there's times when I think you have to, you know, find the right balance there. Yeah. Between, yeah. Well, I mean, these, yeah, balance is hard to find. So let's say evaluating an experiment or is it not working or is it not working yet? I mean, there, there, there's a Correct. lot of gray area. And so we had a hypothesis that this would be better doesn't seem to be better. So is our hypothesis that people are coming up a learning curve, we're going through a productivity dip, but it's going to get better. So let's persevere. Let's let's stick with it versus, uh, you know, back to lean startup language, I guess, do we pivot? Do we give up? Like what, what's the the A and the plan? I like plan, do, study, adjust? Like is it a, adopt, adapt, abandon? You know, there's, there's lots of different A's you could throw in there. There's, there's so much art and gray area um, to that. And I, and, and, and I don't know without psychological safety and the ability to try things and be wrong, like it just seems like there are too many traps where I'm going to be super cautious and not try new things, or I'm going to give up too quickly, or it's like that, that all seems really suboptimal to the business. If I have to always be right. That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, I've had kids and so like, you know, you, you want them to, when they're learning to walk, you want them to fall, you want them to try things on their own, but you're not going to let them do it by a staircase. Right. Yeah. So there, there, there's the fine, there's that. Yeah. Where does it get to be actively dangerous to, to do that experiment I, versus, you know, yeah. I, I hope nobody has ever filmed a TikTok video of baby's first steps on the edge of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> no. oh, yeah. No, I mean, no, no, yeah. No, no. yeah. So, you know, I, I, it's the, the, so in, in the book, I just want to mention that. Since I'm a huge fan of Paul O'Neill, and I know he was really, really into this um, dignity and respect for people, right? That he'd say, if you didn't have dignity and respect for people, one of his three major questions that he asks for habitual excellence is, are people treated with dignity and respect every day without regard to their race or educational background or this or that or the other thing? Um, and it's an, it was an important, hugely important part of his thinking. So much so that in my book, it nearly became one of the mantras. There's six mantras in the book. And one of them used to be something like um, treat people with dignity and respect. Um, slowly but surely that that morphed and changed. Um, it, it goes back to that definition of being quick, easy, and graceful. So what I realized at a certain point was that if you're graceful, uh, that means you're graceful with people too. And you know, it's not always possible to be graceful if you're not in, in balance. So imbalances, being unstable, coming to work and being, you know, off center. Um, these are things that lead to the opposite of dignity and respect for people. They can, you know, people can feel disrespected or whatever, because, you know, you're, you're not balanced. Or there's not a balance of like experiments and, uh, and standard work, right? So balance became this word for me that became so utterly important. I hadn't realized the importance of balance to agility or to high performance, how important that word is and how much Paul O'Neill fixated it on it for his for his uh, players. Offensive balance, defensive balance, player size balance. Uh, Are you talking I about John Wood? Sorry, John Wooden? John sense? Wooden. Sorry. Yes, John Wooden. John Wooden would get you know, he was obsessed with balance and he'd say, the only reason I'm obsessed with balance is because balance is, is a prerequisite for speed. You cannot be fast if you're not in balance. And so be balanced and graceful became the mantra. And that is to me, uh, you know, echoing what O'Neill would talk about when it came to treating people with dignity and dignity and respect. You've got to be, you've got to find the right balance. You've got to, uh, be be graceful, and then then the right things tend to happen. Right, right. Because I mean, it's it's an outcome from principles and having you know when people talk about culture, 
you know, it's this question of like, you know, if it's a global company and you, you go and talk to people at different sites around the world, like how consistently do they talk about certain things? Um, or are there certain stories that tend to pop up over and over again? Um, you know, it's a good sign of like, and I've, I've run across a lot of former Alcoa people and um, they're very consistent of, of stories they have uh, of their interactions with Paul O'Neill or interactions that they um, witnessed or observed of like being as respectful to the person working at the front desk as you would to an executive. You know, that that respect is, um, you know, I think from his standpoint, um, something that you um, you granted um, as opposed to, you know, I think there's a darker view when people are like, oh, respect needs to be earned. OK, well, that sounds like you're, you you judge who's worthy of respect. And that to me, that's I don't I, I wouldn't subscribe to that leadership model as opposed to, you know, Paul O'Neill's idea of respecting everybody. Now, there's stories and I'm sure as he told you and as are documented in these different books, he would challenge people, right? Respect doesn't mean being nice or soft or easy. I mean, he said, I mean, this might've been one of the original big, hairy, audacious goals of zero harm. Right. Right. So you got to push people, you got to challenge, you got to hold plant managers to standard. And, you know, uh, you know, Paul O'Neill famously gave out his phone number to frontline employees that if your safety issues are not getting resolved immediately, here's my home phone number. Yep. And I'm sure that first time he got that call, I don't know the details of it, but I'm sure that plant manager wasn't happy with the phone call he got. Right. 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 But it's not yeah. because Paul O'Neill, I don't think, loved if he yelled. I don't, he, there, there's some leaders who love yelling at people because it's an expression of power. But I think Paul O'Neill was trying to use his power to help the vulnerable people who didn't have any power. I mean, I don't know, maybe that's a two. Uh, I mean, uh, it was an absolutely remarkable thing to give his home number and and the story of, of that worker calling him uh, late at night in Connecticut. It's in my book because um, it, it's such an utterly remarkable story of of how that all was handled. Um, and you know, I mean, back to the whole respect thing. I'll I'll just never forget the story from Zappos, which is when they interview people, they'll put them through interviews all day long, and then they'll put them on this little bus to take them back to you know their hotel. Um, and this is their bus. It's a Zappos bus or van, whatever the heck it is. Right. Um, and then you've probably heard this, but you know, the person will, the per- person driving the van or, or shuttle, whatever, will then come back to the office after dropping them off and they'll interview that person and say, well, how, yeah, how did they treat you? Yeah. Right. So again, back to like, how do you treat everyone, whatever their rank is with dignity and respect? I mean, the things that Paul O'Neill did to remove um special privileges mm-hmm. for executives they're like mm-hmm. executives used to fly to new york city stay in a in an apartment owned by alcoa take their families to broadway plays and stuff all in the company's dime and and you know he just completely eliminated this he got rid of the golf course for the executives he the cafeteria that was only for executives this is going away you know some would say wow he was a, he was a complete maverick yes Yes. And, and there's different dimensions to this. So there's big expenses and there's the little ones. So the one story that I've heard him tell was that, you know, every morning the executives got like a free Wall Street Journal and free coffee and Danish. And he would ask, well, do we give that to everybody? Right. And the answer, of course, was no. And he's like, I think our executives can afford those things. Right. We're right. paying them well. And then like with the golf course, I've, I've heard... Um, how there, there, there was not just the expense, but like on day one in that job, he realized that that golf club had very discriminatory, exclusionary membership policies. Right, right. And so right. back to principles, he was like, we are not going to pay um, for that. And, and and my recollection of it is that he, he came to the club and said, um, I, I think it was, uh, you're going to admit a black member. And here's here's the Alcoa executive who I suggest is the first member. You know, so right. there, there was some, if you will, social activism, but back to the principles of what message does that send to your employees if word gets out that the company is paying for a golf club that discriminates? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just incredible stuff. Um, I interviewed a guy named William O'Rourke. Hmm. So you, I know, have, I know. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've, yeah. Yeah, an amazing guy. And uh, his stories are, are, he worked directly with Paul O'Neill for years. He worked, you know, uh, he, he's also an incredible leader and amazing person there. And the stories he told about dealing with what he dealt with in Russia, 
you know, where, you know, basically they're trying to op, they, they, they took over these smelting aluminum plants there. Formerly and, state run. Yeah. Yeah. Formerly state run where, where the average of five people would die every year and they completely transformed it. But he had to deal with the pressure of having a whole bunch of equipment sent to Russia and sitting there in the warehouses, not moving because they wanted him to pay bribes and he wouldn't repay bribes. It's incredible integrity, right? Another part of O'Neill's approach is just extremely high integrity. This is a part of the agile movement that I can't stand is I think there's a lot of uh, integrity issues when it comes to like these cheap little certifications that that were put out there many years ago and um, are not at all, you know, associated with quality or excellence or anything, just Uh like, that's a problem in Lean Six Sigma circles, just the same. Yes, yes. Um, or it it can be. So there, there are so many parallels. It's funny. I mean, we're in a lot of ways talking about different industries, different settings, but a lot of it comes back to these very familiar themes and principles. And, like, and I think that's what's powerful um, is the ability to learn and transform ideas. Paul O'Neill helped people in healthcare. You alluded to this um, earlier that these principles are applicable as opposed to the trap of copying tools. And is this so there's a a word, a a phrase I've heard related to agile, and I think it applies in other settings, but I want to ask you to explain it. What is meant by cargo cult agile? Yeah. I mean, it's just, obviously it's just following some formula or recipe that you think uh, that worked for elsewhere and you copy it and try to apply it. And it usually doesn't work. It's, it's often just, you know, superficial or or you know rearranging this the seats on the titanic uh it's not at all uh addressing the underlying issues and stuff like that so it's yeah it's unfortunate but it, it does happen i think everywhere and i i've read and I, in my book i quote one of the leaders in the lean field of who said that you know he's disappointed in where lean has gone because for to a large extent people are doing little changes always little changes and never lean leaps um and I think it's James Womack I, I, who said this, basically uh, criticizing the, the lean movement and just saying, you know, we missed it. At some point, we lost this ability to do these leaps. You know, the Japanese railway system that led to the bullet trains, uh, another thing Charles Duhigg wrote about, right? Um, that was an incredible leap in, in how we think about railway you know, speed. Um, huge leap. And, and so a lot of people talk about small changes, small changes, small changes. And they're great. Small changes are great, but also maybe how do you get bigger changes to happen too? Mm-hmm. Well, there's 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 that piece, and and, and it, it's an and we can do small changes, yes. and we can do bigger exactly. revolutionary changes, maybe built on you know small tests of change. But I think there's this other trap of um, not just certification or thing a, a miss a misframed problem statement where executive thinks, well, the problem is the workers. So the workers need training so that they can be more lean, quote unquote, or they can be more agile or they can be safe. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like I think a lot of it really, it starts with the people if you were to look in the mirror, you know, uh, and, yeah. and that's harder to get people to accept. I think it's, it's, there's some human nature unless people are mavericks they're going to want to blame others instead of look and say, what's my role in creating this? And what do I need to do to change the culture, whether that's a culture of safety or a culture of agility or both? That's right. So it comes down to like, your your are you, are you, uh, is your nature one of Kaizen continuous improvement uh, or not? You know, and uh, I think if it's not there, you know, it's going to be a problem for the organization and, uh, you know. I mean, I think these things can be taught. I mean, we could have a you know a separate nature versus nurture discussion. But I think the issue then is when an executive has decades. I mean, this goes back to a demingism. I think it was something like um, decades of experience means nothing if it's decades doing the same thing over and over, the same wrong thing over and over. I'm paraphrasing. Right. That's right. Yep. Harder yep. to change the more set you are in mindsets and behaviors and you've succeeded maybe even in spite of some of those but it feels like you've succeeded because of those right yeah it's easy to have blind spots too so like this is where diversity is so important right uh having diverse perspectives around you having the humility to be wrong and and listen to others uh there's just so many ways that we can improve our our and, and just caring to improve like healthcare i mean my gosh you know it's it's like 
imagine how the world could be different if we were better at healthcare. I mean, in addition to like, you know, helping people not even ever have to go to the, the doctor because we're doing uh, the, the work necessary to keep them healthy in the first place. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Well, gosh. Okay. So we're uh, almost up on a, a time limit here. So I want to start to wrap up. And again, Joshua Karievsky, Joy of Agility is uh, the book. I mean, th- this is great fun. Maybe we have you back at some point. There's there's so much we could explore. And I, I mean, as a final point real quick, you know, within the book of the mantras, one of them that stood out is very Deming-esque. It's very O'Neillian. Drive out fear, make yeah. safety a prerequisite to protect people and pave the way for high performance, maybe I'll just leave it to you, um, you know, for kind of a, a final thought on on that mantra. Yeah, that's a complete hat tip to Deming and um, and, and O'Neill. Um, driving out fear being our our such an important part of our job, right? Whether that's psychological safety, you know, the fear of speaking up, we have to we have to prevent it. The the, the fear of experimenting, uh, we have to drive out fear in, in, in an economy that's kind of slow. How do we? help drive out fear there. What do we do? How do we behave in, in such a way? How do we make products or, or provide services that drive out fear so that people aren't afraid of using those products or services? They they, they feel confident in them. Um, th- this is the secret. This is a major secret to success uh, is, is driving out fear. So I, I, I bow down to those folks and, uh, you know, like to just my stories are in the book are very much paying homage to all these great thinkers. Uh, it's just I wanted one place to go to have a bunch of these stories that even young people could and, and experienced people could go to to say, yeah, this is really what they were talking about. Yeah. And um, I had flipped real quick. Oh, I had found the magically found the O'Neill page. Um, but shoot. Yeah, I, I see that it's in there. But lots of you know short uh, chapters and a lot of great ideas in here. Um, so I hope people will check it out. Joy of Agility, Joshua Karievsky. Um, thank you so much for being a guest. Really appreciate I, it. Thank you so much, Mark. I love to chatting with you anytime. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.